0: No mai toti mai ki te word Christchurch, ki te fari o te puna o waifitu. tu. Tina koto ka toa, ki kua taimai nei ki te koho, letters to auto tahi. Ka mihi ki te manafinua, ki ngaitua huriri, ki te iwi o ngaitahu anu hoki. Ka nu te mihi ki a wanita, koto ko nathan, ko beruz, ko lil, ko eric. Hurino itifari e moriora. Ko Naomi Vandenbrook TNA, Ko o te, te i te pō nei. Nō tina koto, katoa. Welcome to Letters to Tahi. i I'm your host, Naomi Vandenbroek, and it is a great delight to share this afternoon session with you. Uh, special thanks again to the sponsors of the Word Festival and also to the supporters of this session, Victoria University Press, and Alan and Unwin. I've got a really easy job, which is to talk as little as possible and to introduce our wonderful guests. So I'm going to start with this incredible wahine to my right. That was the challenge. <laughs> she is a multidisciplinary artist, producer, educator, and researcher. She is the director of Takirua's 2020 Te Ao Māori touring season, Ngā Manu Rōreka, And she is completing her final year of a master's in Māori and Indigenous leadership here at UC. She is currently producing and directing Tumuhana alongside the Christchurch Symphony Orchestra and Suko Kali. Please welcome Juanita Hippie.
1: A tiripau taku ki te keo keoka o te poho o tamatia pō kaiwhinoa. I hoki mai te manu ki te moana whakarau pō, a ka kite te marae o te ki o te raki whakaputa. Tuwana te rāwhare, ko wheke. Tuwana te rāhapu, ko kāti wheke. Ko kaitahu, ko kāti māmoe rātou, ko waitaha wae o hoku iwi. Ko Moki Horawa ko te ikua whānau, ko Eri Wikitoria Stone tōku māma, ko Hotere ne Tauataua hepi tōku pāpā, ko Waiau, ko Wanita hepi tōku ikua. Tēnā rā tātou katoa. Kia ora Oto Tahi. This is one of the more difficult letters that I've had to write, because Oto Tahi, who are you? Is this us? Uh, I guess that's why I wanted to start from the beginning of the story of Christchurch o Tahi, so you remember where you came from or where you have come to. First, the gods sang the world into existence. timataka mai, mai o te atua. First, the gods sang the world into existence. That was written by my ancestor, Matiaha Ahatiramorehu, in the year 1849 and that date will become significant later. Aoraki, our great mountain, is the child of Raki, the sky, and Pokoharua Te Pō. The Southern Alps are Aoraki's siblings, Rakiroa, Rakirua, Rā Rakiroa, and this land, Te Waipounamu, the South Island, is their waka. That story is fatal. And then from Hawaii, our Polynesian ancestors came, Waiariki o Aio and her husband Rākaihautu, plus their son Raki Hoia and his wife Tapuiti, and their crew who navigated the Waka Uruau across the Pacific and landed at Whakatū Nelson. It is the greatest ocean-going voyage in history, but it is unwritten. Together they made up the people we call Waitaha, and Waitaha is the name given to Canterbury. From the North Island came descendants of Tahupotiki, of Paikia and Kahununi, and they battled and made love and traded and made babies and settled, and still more descendants came from the North, and they battled and made love and traded and made babies and settled. They became the people we know as Ngaitahu, Tahu, my ancestors, a melting pot. Abel Tasman arrived in 1642, not that he knew that. <laughs> Captain Cook arrived in 1770, and it's true, he murdered the sons of mothers. He regretted it. He wrote about it in his diary. And this was also about the time of Totahi, your namesake, or Totahi, a chief who claimed this area, and there were many chiefs and many settlements all around Waitaha. And at that time, Kaiapoe Pa was the heart, their hub, their meeting place. That was before it was ransacked by Te Rau Paraha and Ngati Toa, of whom the famous haka kāmate comes from. But this particular place was special because of its abundance of food sources mahinga kai eels, white bait, native trout, grey duck, paradise duck, teal, turnip, fern tuna, inaka mata, kokopu, koi koi takitaki raipota, pora, and aruhe. The Treaty of Waitangi was signed in 1840, you all know that. I hope you do. (laughs) In 1848, the Canterbury Purchase saw 20 million acres of Ngai Tahu land sold sold for £2,000. One year later in 1849, significant date, Matiaha who wrote another document, this time a letter to Governor Eyre, it would go on to become the first formal statement of Ngai Tahu grievances against the Crown, which as some of you may know did not get settled until 1998. In 1854, four ships arrived in the Littleton Harbour, the Creasy, the Charlotte Jane, the Ge- George Seymour, and on my birth date, the 17th of December, arrived Randolph, carrying no less than 754 passengers from England, colonists and immigrants. let's call them Canterbury Pilgrims. <laughs> they surveyed my mother till her roots fell out. Tōtahi's bones were excavated in about 1868, replaced by St Luke's Church, which, as some of you will know, came down as a result of the Christchurch earthquakes. Tōtahi's bones were lost; we lost the bones of our namesake, and our spaces went through a period of beautification because, just as Ngāti Mamoe and Waita have felt, the new settlers were invested in this fertile land too. Christchurch, the Garden City, or Tōtahi kakai. A swamp, though, was never a good place to be suburbanized. The next period in history is a well-known period in history, period. All of my ancestors, all of my ancestors' whakapapa here and the European ancestors I have married into this lineage, and I am here because of all of them. Born at Christchurch Women's Hospital in 81, grew up on Purchase Street in St Albans, which used to be a 2,000-acre bog. Went to St Mary's Catholic Primary School on Manchester Street, joined the choir, kapahaka ballet, intimate eye sports tournament. Lived with other people's microaggressions. (laughs) Hagley Theatre Company, period of roaming, now I'm home. I was here during the earthquake. My papa doesn't like to talk about it. He had to pull the remains of a woman from the rubble as her husband stood by. He is too afraid to go through the Littleton Tunnel and too afraid to look back. What do you remember? The dust cloud, the sirens, the liquefaction, the lines to the petrol station, the shock, strangers embracing and crying in the street, the sun on your face where buildings once were? I live in Aranui now, and sometimes I think you've forgotten about us, Ototahi. I was here during the terrorist attack, and there will never be words to describe how that made me feel. But it made me think of Operation 8 and the raids on Tuhoi peoples and Parihaka. That was by the state. People shouldn't have to live in terror, and our Muslim sisters and brothers' voices have not been listened to for years. And the outright platforms that enable such violence have been in our city for years. And no more mothers should lose sons or daughters. I've been writing a lot about you, Otto Tahi, in my master's dissertation, which is due tomorrow, by the way.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I was thinking about you, and I was writing and thinking that I can barely even say the words in my dissertation hegemony, phenomenology, cultural imperialism, spatio temporal, homogenization, methodological, auto ethnographic, bourgeoisie I can't even spell that one. <laughs> Fetishized, infantilized, marginalization, regime, tyrannius. Someone's going to come up to me after this and be like, um, the words actually said like indigeneity, quantitative, qualitative, determinant, multi epistemes, hermeneutical, militarism, and autoctonus. Dissertation, I can hardly even say the words in my dissertation. I didn't know how to finish my letter to you, Autotahi, so I asked the future and the past, my six year old son and my mother. I said, son, if you could write a letter to Ōtōtahi to the city you live in, what would you want to say? And I don't know if he understood the question entirely, but he thought about it for ages, because kids like deep thinking, and he said, surprise, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) And my mum said, there are bones all across this city. They are our bones. We are the bones. Yours sincerely, Juanita Heppi.
0: for that Juanita that was uh, quite the level to set um I'm <laughs> sure I'm sure you've just really made it so much easier on your fellow <laughs> fellow uh, presenters here if you liked Juanita and who wouldn't after that, that um you can see her tonight in the word up cabaret at nine o'clock so and I believe there's a slightly Halloweeny kind of maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. flavor to yeah, yeah so yeah just you know that's something for you guys to explore later um next up we have Nathan Joe. Nathan is an award-winning Chinese Kiwi playwright, a performance poet, and a critic. His most recent plays include I Am Rachel Chu and Scenes from a Yellow Peril, which will be staged next year in 2021. He is currently developing a full-length spoken word theatre, which is a fantastic title. It's called An Increasingly Growing List of Things You'll Never Do. Uh, He's also one of the 2020 Ursula Bessel Writers-in-Residence at the University in Canterbury. I heard Nathan last night at the Late Night Poetry Hour and I can assure you you're in for a treat if you're not already familiar with his work. Please welcome Nathan Joe.
2: I'm the only one reading on my phone. How classic of me. (laughs) Dear Ototahi, I could not write you a proper letter. I know that's a bit of a cop-out. The best I could do is gather up the bits and pieces, a fragmented letter for a city of fragments. I remember reading that criticism, good criticism, is just a happy misunderstanding. I like that. I like the idea that we are all just trying to understand each other, that even when we fail, sometimes something can fall into place. To write to you seems so impossible. You are so many things. Better to write around you and hope somewhere, somehow, one of those happy accidents occurs. Writing a letter intended for the public is a sort of performance, a monologue, a spectacle. It has none of the intimacy of a journal intended for your eyes only. There's something oxymoronic, then, about performing a letter addressed to someone or something. A bundle of contradictions. Tap water is better in Christchurch. (laughs) I remember telling people that about you when I first moved to Auckland. The tap water in Christchurch is way better. But after a while, I stopped noticing the difference. We acclimatize, adjust very quickly. Henrik Ibsen talks about the life lie, the thing a man must tell himself so he can survive, so he can live the life that he lives, that to take away that life lie is to take away happiness. How many life lies have I told myself to survive you? One of the life lies, refusing to acknowledge the canyon that sits between you, your mother, and your father, because like wily coyote chasing the roadrunner off a cliff, you will only fall if you look down. I discovered my knack for irony living here, not as a literary device, but just as a mode of living, (laughs) to hold things at a distance, to twist them until they were easier to hold on to. But irony does have its limitations. It's a poor substitute for honesty, for sincerity. When I last knew you years ago, before I moved back, you called yourself by a different name. You were simply Christchurch. You once swaggered, as they say, with the overconfidence of a mediocre white man. Swinging his dick around as if everyone was supposed to know your name. You've been humbled as of late. Realising the name you were born with was not yours to change. Funny that a place can be humbled. That the residents could swell with so much. One might say enlightenment. Others might say guilt or shame. You are a city plagued with feelings of white guilt. But you you think white guilt is bad. Try having Asian parents. A perpetual motion machine that runs on the physics of ancestral trauma. You make me feel things, Christchurch. A real whirly gig of emotions. Yellow guilt. Is that a thing? Call it a product of living between Christchurch and Auckland too long, of being pulled between both cities. Christchurch, you got me feeling liminal, like, oh my god, I feel so liminal today. (laughs) No, really, how do I look? I've changed. When I last lived inside you, when I last crawled through your depths and breathed your daily air, I was so afraid, so fearful. Am I braver now? Do I walk with more comfort in my own skin? Do I look tired? I feel tired. I wanted to, coming back here, I wanted to be at the point where nothing could faze me. I wanted to be all bravado, like having the confidence to wear your shirt back to front and not give a fuck. (laughs) Bubble tea isn't a replacement for having a culture. I don't know what kind of letter this is. Been trying to figure that out. Nine years ago, it would have been an emotional breakup letter, fueled by that early 20-something angst, the sort of breakup where you leave town and start all over again, the sort of breakup breakup letter you leave on their pillow, the sort of breakup where you cannot look back like Orpheus leaving the underworld. Another life lie I told myself is that I could not live here that there was no place for me, not the people, not the culture. That survival mechanism meant I threw myself away from you, meant that I could be angry at you forever, and now to be proven wrong, well... Like carving your own space on the crust of this land, knowing it is not your land to carve onto, being neither taken or taken, taker or taken, merely drifting, drifting, drifting. Otatahi equals family, equals home, equals parents, plus friends. Family means the promise or contract of unconditional love. But I don't want that. I want conditions. I want lines to be drawn so lines are not crossed. It's strange to love men who remind me of you. Another thing you taught me, compartmentalizing my life, pushing stuff down, inside deeper and deeper like a series of Russian dolls, but each doll looks like Edward Monk's The Scream. A guilty, guilty thoughts living here, and I have guilty, guilty thoughts now that I have returned. The distance between myself and my parents, our proximity paralleling or correlating directly with the amount of shame I feel, the geography of shame. Like, is it morbid? Does it make me a bad person to feel like I'm waiting on certain things to end before I can move on? Like waiting for the entire family tree to just, for every branch to be broken, every leaf to fall before I can finally be myself, to breathe in the ashes of my ancestors, gung gung Popo. Po, Reminders that some things are never talked about over dinner, or to talk about them is to forfeit a sort of dignity or is to embarrass oneself with anger. So much unresolved, I mistook moving away from you as a sort of closure. Reopened old wounds proved I was wrong. Settling is such a two pronged word. To settle is pejorative, but to be settled sounds so, so, so good. Relaxing, contentment, peace. Do you remember any of my firsts? They are so hazy to me. First time, first kiss, first crush. You witness that and it's difficult being with someone who knows you so intimately, who has seen you at all edges of humiliation. It's easy to hate someone who has seen the worst of you. My mother tells me how alike we are. I wonder if she means in the ways I hate her or in the ways I love her. I perhaps, or perhaps both. I don't clarify. I go to bed wondering. When I think of you... Talk about you, say your name, ototahi, Christchurch, ototahi, Christchurch, home, home, ototahi, Christchurch, you shapeshift in my mind. To love a city and to not have it love you back is its own form of torture, Mary Jean Chen says. Why didn't you warn me about moving back home with my parents? And like any scorn, unrequited love, I can only react in the most obvious way. I can only react harshly. And to turn my back on you, I can only love you in that petty, conditional way. Like falling back in love with an ex. gross. (laughs) Gross. <laughs> I love you. I miss you. I fucking hate you. I'm glad I'm back.
3: Oh, cute,
0: right. oh, Nathan. That was fantastic. Um, you can get more of all of that. Tonight, at Stand Up Poetry, a quiz show. No, it's tomorrow. Um, Nathan needs a break because he's been back-to-backing just about the whole day, so it's incredible he's actually managing to stand on two feet, so kaffai. Uh, next, we have Beiruz Bouchani, who is a Kurdish-Iranian journalist, scholar, cultural advocate, writer, and filmmaker. He is the author of the incredible No Friends But the Mountain, um, portraying life inside Manus Island Detention Centre. He is currently a senior... Adjunct Research Fellow in the Naitahu Research Centre at the University of Canterbury. I know that many of you will have been here last year when Beiruz arrived and did his first word festival engagement. So it's a great delight to share the stage with him and these other writers today.
3: Uh, Thank you. Actually, I was uh, about to miss this event because... uh, and I think it's terrible, after a year, still I didn't know where is Gallery Center and where is Art Center. <laughs> so I went to Art Center, and I said, there was a conference there. And I say that, uh, oh, so I'm in the, uh, among the panelists. I said, OK. <laughs> and Yeah, it was 4 o'clock. So I was about to just go to the stage. And then I was thinking, "Oh, the event is on four thirty, so I say, "What is this conference?" <laughs> they say it's about IT. and i t and so oh then So finally, I ended up here <laughs> uh, It has been ten months since I arrived in New Zealand. I have been grappling with Australia and culture and politics for many years. So when I got uh, here, my general uh, impression of New Zealand was that it is a... I I should mention this, that it was difficult for me to write letters to you. I wrote a letter to my friend in Kurdistan about you. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it has been 10 months since I arrived in New Zealand. I have been grappling with Australian... Culture and politics for many years. So, when I got here, my general impression of New Zealand was that it is a country just like Australia. On my uh, very first day, I walked out uh, of the airport gate to meet the press, and my friend Donna gently, gently pulled me aside and whispered a warning in my ear. Berus, be careful what you say in front of the camera. New Zealand is not like Australia. In the afternoon of that same day, we joined some reporters in the Hagley Park. I sometimes send you, yeah, that to my friend, uh, pictures of flowers from that park. Australian reporters complimented on the beauty of the park and its river. Donna told the reporters New Zealand is a piece of heaven situated over on this side of the world. After all this time, I look back and I'm still captivated by these two memories. I feel like I now live in a house facing a beautiful garden. I can only see life through these two windows. If someone asked me regarding New Zealand, I would respond respond New Zealand is totally different to Australia I have a I have to admit of course that describing New Zealand as a piece of paradise still presents a challenge for me as you know my arrival in New Zealand was particular uh, particular the fact is that I ended up engaging with the middle class, middle classes from the day one. My network of friends has been limited to this group throughout my time here, and I have not become acquainted with other social classes. I have always observed the people around me and the different communities I encounter. Wherever I go, I focus on the marginalized, and hidden parts of the society. During the time I have been here, there was just one occasion when I met a working class couple who took me on a boat ride. We we rode through the entire river that uh, runs through the city. This year, I have tried really hard to connect with the minorities, groups, and communities more connection with them will give me a fuller picture of New Zealand. I met an activist later on who opened another window for me, someone who works with the homeless, with women who have been victims of domestic violence and also with children living in poverty. I learned that there are still children in poverty right here in this beautiful country. Women are still victims of domestic violence, and the suicide rate is high. These are other aspects of this country. I hesitate to use the word heaven when describing it. I was born in a religious dictatorship government. Oppression involved the assimilation of minorities, uh, minoritized ethnic groups, into Persian culture, especially the oppression of courts. What I I was impressed with in New Zealand are the elements of Maori culture represented everywhere. For example, the name of a street or a river in Maori language. First Nations here have achieved a lot in contrast to the courts. The more I learn about them, and their struggle, the more I think about Kurdistan. The Maori struggle is uh, decades ahead of our struggle. Their achievements are like a dream for the Kurds, a dream for me. The Maori language is taught here as an official language in the education system. Even in the universities, galleries, and art centers, Maori culture has a place. But after 100 years of resistance, uh, courts are still prohi- prohibited from reading in our own language in schools. We do not control our own media. The colonialists still control our destiny. It is interesting that in New Zealand, recent generation of Kiwi children are Familiar with the Maori language and culture much more than the older generations. However, in Kurdistan, our new generations are being assimilated. I am worried about what will happen when our old men and women die. What will happen in the next two decades? Who can save our culture and language? Will there be any anything left at all? However, the Mo- Maori struggle continues. There are still a disproportionate number of Maori people in prisons in this country. There is still a lot of discrimination, but I feel that New Zealand is on the right way, right, right track. Of course, I am still interested in the general culture in the city where I live, Christchurch. I am still learning a lot. It is hard to believe. It is amazing when I see people greeting each other on the street every day. People who do not know each other. They greet each other in the park. They smile when they see each other every day. This is remarkable for me. Even a senator rides a bicycle down the street and smiles at people. I remember in the beginning, Young women would smile at me in the park. I was happy because I thought they were attracted to me. (laughs) But later, I realized that these smiles were just pure acts of kindness. They smile for the simple fact that they are compassionate, they have no other intention. I also found people here to be unusually humble. And somewhat shy, once I was standing in a gallery in the city, I was among a crowd of people. A woman approached me. Can I ask a question? How come you are so confident? I was surprised, but I understand why she thought this. Also, I have never met a Kiwi who does not drink. (laughs) Alcohol is central, a part of the culture here. I have come to understand this better over time. But I do not understand parts of the culture here. Rugby is like a religion to Kiwis. I once watched a group of high school students play rugby. In the middle of the game, I had to apologize to my host and leave. I rode. <laughs> I rode my... <laughs> I rode my bike to the ocean to watch the birds. <laughs> Perhaps the most annoying aspect of the culture here in this city is that people are extremely disgusted by smoking. There are <laughs> there are no smoking signs. There are uh, no smoking signs everywhere in restaurants, on the university campus, almost everywhere. It seems that they have put put up these signs just for me. <laughs> I think I... In a cafe in Wellington, someone approached me and we be- began a conversation when he found out that found out I was from Christchurch, he laughed. He said Christchurch is like the Australia of New Zealand. <laughs> I said no. I argued that where, where else in the world can you find people who do not know each other sharing greetings? My first impression of New Zealand was that it is just like Australia. I quickly realized that it is not This fact is no longer a challenge for me. But my second impression of New Zealand was that it is a piece of paradise. This image is still a challenge I need to grapple with. Thank you. Thank you.
0: That was beautiful, thank you. Um, We were talking last night, yesterday, wasn't it? And you said that you felt strange to be asked to write a letter about Christchurch because you're so new here. And I said, but we need to see what our city looks like through new eyes. And I think you.
3: Yeah, I
4: should mention this that for six months I was (laughs) just (laughs) sleeping.
0: Well, next we have Lil O'Brien, who is a freelance copywriter, a first-time author, and who has been described by numerous friends as the gayest person I know. (laughs) So... That's that's quite a call. I love it. So we're going to see how we feel at the end of that. (laughs) She's written for a number of publications about queer topics and more. She spent two years telling her coming out story around New Zealand as part of Rainbow Youth's high school education program, which inspired her to write her memoir, Not That I'd Kiss a Girl. She will also be appearing tonight in the Word Up cabaret, so you can see her later too. Please join me in welcoming Lil O'Brien.
4: This was a, also a very difficult letter for me to write. Um, this is the fourth go at it, so hopefully it came out okay. I left Christchurch in 2002, but we didn't break up until 2004. Things between us now are frosty. We don't like to be in the same place at the same time. <laughs> The timeline of my relationship with Christchurch will always be split in two now. There is before April 2004, and there is after. Here's my side of the story. Before. Dad drove me to school in Merivale every morning on his way to work out near the airport. He had a bit of road rage, and it was always around Believe Ave that it came bubbling up. <laughs> Something about all those traffic lights. He'd drive up the bum of the car in front, quickly, as though he wasn't going to stop until he hit the bumper, and then he'd tap the brakes but stay too close. I don't think his ideal outcome was actually for them to go faster. It was for him to see them give an ashamed look in their rear-view mirror, which almost never happened. (laughs) After school, mum usually picked me up because I moaned about having to catch the bus out to Sumner and walk up the steep Edwin Mouldy track to our house, carrying my heavy school bag. I'd wait outside of school for her to pull up in her BMW Z3 Roadster, nibbling at the remnants of the lunch she'd packed for me that day. Vegemite and lettuce sandwiches, or homemade chocolate muffins with a Tupperware of cream to pour on top. And central Otago dried apricots. Never the Turkish ones. She knew I didn't like the Turkish ones. After. I pulled the heavy front door of my parents' house closed behind me. In the sudden quiet, it was almost possible to believe that what had just happened had been a dream. That I could open the door again and step back into the warmth and things would be just the way they'd been 30 minutes ago. But I already knew they wouldn't be. Don't pack, just go my mother had said, after she'd told me to get out of the house and never come back, that she never wanted to see me again. She had leaned back into the wall and turned her head away slightly as I passed. And then I was standing on Scarborough Hill in the dark with just the things I'd managed to scoop up on my way out the door, waiting for someone else to take a long drive across town to pick me up. I'd been told that my suitcase would be waiting for me there on the side of the road when I came back for it tomorrow. Before. Mum used to buy my sister and I a $3 scratchy as a bribe for coming to the Redcliffe supermarket with her, which was a lot better than the Sumner supermarket, but probably also because Mum knew the owner of the Sumner one and she didn't want to have to stop and talk to him every time. So we only went to the Sumner super value if Mum had forgotten an ingredient for dinner that night. In and out, she would say. We're just dashing in and out. Don't go wandering off. By the time I was 14, I'd asked if I could get a men's magazine instead of a scratchy, something like FHM or M2. I'd tell her it was because the articles were more interesting than in something like Cosmo, and they were, but it's also because there was talk in there about how sexy ladies were, and I couldn't help but agree, even though I didn't want to think about it too closely. My sister pulled the centrefold of her teen magazine out for her bedroom wall. Devon Sawa from the Casper the Ghost movie. Or Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Or Peter Andre with those famous abs. Not me. I only glanced at the woman in a bikini in the centrefold quickly, as though even looking would get me in trouble. When we got Sky TV, I would scour the pages of the Sky magazine where no one else was home, looking for film blurbs such as An intense friendship between the two women develops. <laughs> I'd creep upstairs after everyone had gone to bed at two a, uh, 12 a.m., 1 or 2 in the morning, whenever the movie was on, hoping I would eventually, near the end of the movie and just before one of them died or went back to her boyfriend, uh, <laughs> see two girls kissing. I kept my sweaty hand wrapped tightly around the remote and one ear out for the slightest sound elsewhere in the house. If mum heard something and got up to see what it was, she would be quiet and sneaky like I am, appearing in the door in her ghostly white nightie. She couldn't know what I was doing. There was no way she could be allowed to know. After. I was sitting in a small room under the house that we called The Dungeon. The Dungeon. It had been carved into the reddish rock of the hill, so you had to be careful not to scrape your skin on the wall when you rolled over in the single bed during the night. All my belongings were crammed in there, in bags and boxes. I'd been given permission to sleep down there in the dungeon for a few nights before I moved to Auckland. The rest of my family stayed in the main house and I could hear them moving around up there. Mum ducked her head and came in, and the room suddenly felt a lot smaller. She hadn't spoken more than a few sentences to me in nine months and went straight to the washing machine and started pulling damp clothes out, Dad's shirt arms getting tangled around the fins inside. I sat on the bed, pretending I wasn't anxious. I went through your things, she said into the silence. What? I said. I went through your things and I found all your lesbian paraphernalia. She told me how she'd found love letters and a vibrator too. I just sat there. I wondered what part of that was the lesbian paraphernalia. (laughs) Or was it the sum of that that was the lesbian paraphernalia? Why do you keep doing this to yourself, Mum? I said. You're just hurting yourself. When I left the house that time, I really did never come back. Before. Mum and Dad seemed to enjoy having all my friends around. When I was 17, my best friends Coop and Bridget came over most weekends to get away from the rangy boarding house. I say Rangi because that's how we always said it. <laughs> uh, we'd get ready to go out to the strip in my massive bedroom downstairs and when we emerged, Mum would shuffle us together to take a photo, smiling reflexively as she clicked the button. At 18, I brought home a dozen of the new friends I'd made at University College, Unicol, in Dunedin, and Mum set us up at the formal dining table for our binge drinking. She ordered pizza for us and hovered in the kitchen, ready to chat to any of her eldest daughter's new friends. When we left the town with shrieks of, The taxi's here! She would put the leftover pizza on a glad-wrapped plate in the fridge, collect the glasses with remnants of Bernardino's sparkling wine in them, and carefully gather the tablecloth, then shake the pizza crumbs off the balcony for the birds. After. When I was allowed to spend Christmas with my family again, I'd fly down from where I lived in Auckland My sister, three years younger than me, had been through Otago University by then, too, and one evening a whole bunch of her mates from Knox College came over for dinner. Mum and Dad still loved having their daughter's friends around, but not this daughter. My parents didn't know any of my friends anymore. They didn't know I had a girlfriend who I'd been dating for three years. We'd been going out almost the same amount of time as my sister and her boyfriend, who was sitting next to her now at the formal dining table I could see mum making googly eyes at them happy to see her daughter happy they didn't want to know what made me happy because it didn't make them happy I felt so disconnected from that scene of mum and dad and my sister and a rowdy bunch of boyfriends with their girlfriends sitting around the table that I got up and began clearing the plates loading the dishwasher and topping up drinks It was one of the safe roles I could play in this family now. I was still their daughter, but all my edges had been smoothed off. I was perfectly obedient now. And then I wrote a memoir. (laughs) (laughs) Dear Christchurch, I know it's not really your fault. The fracture isn't between you and me. It's between my Christchurch family and me. Since April 2004, on a pleasant autumn evening when I accidentally revealed I liked girls, not boys, and split my before into an after. Thank you.
0: It a little. That was really beautiful. Thank you. Finally, in this incredible, incredible group that Rachel managed to assemble for this event, I think we should maybe just give her a wee round of applause. <laughs> we have Eric Kennedy. He's the one person that hasn't been able to listen and enjoy everybody else's because he's been sweating bullets on the end. <laughs> I'm sure he hasn't. I'm sure he's cool as a cucumber. He is the author of the delightfully titled There's No Place Like the Internet in Springtime, published by Victoria University Press, and he's currently co-editing an anthology of climate change poetry from Aotearoa, New Zealand, and the Pacific, which will be released by Auckland University Press in 2021. Originally from New Jersey, he's another import. Please join me in welcoming him.
5: Uh, Um, these letters are set in 2013 which is when I um, came to this country and um, it's not just me the city is also writing back to me so dear Otatahi I hope this letter finds you well (laughs) oh god sorry that's a horrible way to begin this let's start again hi Otatahi I hope I'm not being too forward, but the fact is I've fallen in love with someone who lives in you, we met on Twitter, and I was thinking of moving to you. I'm a big fan of your work, especially the whole stoicism through a thousand earthquakes thing. <laughs> that was clutch. Do you have any advice? Or do you know anyone who's looking for an over-educated white poet with sideburns, perfectionist tendencies, and a mania for cats? Oh, I have worked in publishing as a copy editor, so I would never forget the Macron over the O in Otatahi, if that helps. <laughs> Lol. Yours, Eric. Dear Eric, thanks so much for getting in touch. I'm sure you'll appreciate that I'm extremely busy at the moment being fixed up. I don't feel very well some days. So I don't have the energy to give an in-depth reply to every correspondent. (laughs) If there's one thing I want to impart to you, it's this. Don't take love for granted. If you think living in me will secure you love, I reckon you've got to go for it. No one ever died saying, I wish I'd spent more of my most important romantic relationship on the Internet. (laughs) By the way... Was that bit about being a poet a joke? If so, (laughs) ha ha ha. Seriously, though, if you're a builder or a doctor, that would be awesome. (laughs) Yours, Otatahi. Dear Otatahi. Oh, no, the poet thing wasn't a joke. That's not a problem, is it? Yours, Eric. Dear Eric. Now I feel bad. No, there's nothing wrong with being an artist. As a city, that's the last thing I should suggest. What I wrote was a defense mechanism. Capitalism upends all our values, and we wind up disparaging essential parts of our emotional lives because the system doesn't pay us for them, and that frightens us. Under capitalism, it's frightening to spend your time making art because maybe the market will have no use for it and you'll look stupid. And yet, when certainty and material comforts are taken away, even the bean counters turn to art for solace. A story as old as the history of disasters and take it from me, a city that has been through some disasters. Yours, Ototahi. Dear Ototahi, oh, that's a relief to hear your perspective on art. (laughs) I feel that way too sometimes. My disasters have been more personal than world historical, although my friends and I could see the smoke on 9-11. But art has always been like a soothing inhalation of vapors to me. It's also a way of processing events, of resolving my disputes with the world with honesty but you know all that already. You've had your fair share of artists over the years, as I'm discovering as I read up on the scene. Yours, Eric. Dear Eric, there's a Harold Lindsay Bird line that goes, I used to think arguments were the same as honesty. Not a poet from me, but I think the point is a good one. Or, as Alan Kernow said, a poet who has a better claim to being from me, come to the cliff and discover truth out of blear experience. Good luck. Yours, Otatahi. Dear Ototahi, I haven't written for a while because I was worried that I was bothering you by writing too much. Just thought I'd let you know that I've got plane tickets. I really appreciate the advice you've given me. Yours, Eric. Dear Eric, so when I said I was busy before... That wasn't strictly true. I was active, but not overextended. Look, I'm a city. I'm a superconsciousness, like a minor god. I'm a neural network with streets and buildings and sewers. A hyperintelligence with a couple of little rivers flowing through it. I can handle a bunch of people talking at me at the same time. You have no idea what some cities have to put up with. I could tell you stories about my friend Paris... Anyway, so I said that I was busy because I didn't know you yet, but you seem all right. But in another way, we've really said everything we have to say to each other. Cities and people, there's a limit to the depth of communication we can have. We're different creatures. The lion and the impala don't talk philosophy together at the watering hole. I'm pretty good at talking in the oracular register. Remember when I gave my pronouncements on love and arts and capitalism, but I don't really do the bants. So since you're coming, I'll finish up with a peroration in another mode that cities excel at, speaking in the rhapsodic guidebook. So I hope you enjoy my ionized winds, my slightly treacherous beaches, my caves and moa skeletons, my bird covered ruins, my potholed roads, my tidal flows, my caldera skimming fogs, my port full of logs, my long tunnel to go through, my what high school did you go to's, <laughs> my roadside pukekos, my hillside echoes. You get the point. Yours, Ototahi. Dear Otatahi, it was so nice to meet you the other day at the airport with the bats playing over the tannoy in the arrivals area. Just what I would have wanted. Yours, Eric. Dear Eric, no problem. See you around your city, Otatahi. Thank you.
0: Kia ora, Eric. That was fantastic. Um, You can see Eric propping up the bar at uh, the last word as part of the new Regent Street pop-up shortly. (laughs) Thank you all so much for sharing this um, afternoon with us. What what a treat. What a treat. I I don't know about you, but I feel it's so lovely to see a, a place that you feel familiar and connected to so beautifully reflected in the expert hands and pens of these incredible incredible people here. I think another round of applause is in order.